Welcome along to Emirates World. Here's hoping your flight is going well today on Emirates. My next guest here on this special channel dedicated to the Emirates Festival of Literature is children's author and illustrator Tony Ross. Tony, welcome to Emirates. Thank you. Now, as well as illustrating books for famous authors like David Williams and doing the Horrid Henry series, uh, Francesca Simon, you're also an author in your own right. You've got countless books to your name, things like I Want Two Birthdays, and of course, The Little Princess mm -hmm. Stories. You've had such a long and illustrious career, it's hard to know where to begin. So let's go right back to the beginning. When did you first get into books and also just children's books rather than books for adults? Well, I didn't really get into it. I, I slid under the curtains into it. Um, I didn't ever want to be a children's illustrator. I wanted to be a graphic designer, which I became, and then walked out of a meeting in a temper and wanted to do something else, and there was nobody else to employ me, so I thought I'll write a book. It was either that or starvation, as far as I could see, so I, I wrote a book. But in those days, and we're talking about the 70s, I thought write a book, that would be it, one book. But then I didn't know there was a thing in a publisher's contract called an ex-book clause. So as soon as this thing, this book, hit the bookshops, the publisher was saying, oh, what's the second book? I said, second book? Gosh, I've already given you one. How many ideas in the world are there? <laughs> so I had to think of a second book. What was the first book? Oh, the first book actually was six books. It was a little series called Tales from Mr. Toffee's Circus. And they were little stories that had gathered in my head over the years. And they didn't, wouldn't seem to make one decent book. They were too fragmented. So I saw on the book stands books by, um, I forget his name, but he did The Mr. Men. I saw all these tiny Roger little... Roger Hargreaves? Roger Hargreaves, yes. Oh, where did that come from? <laughs> I, I, I thought, those are little tiny books. Those can't cost much. The publisher of those is likely to publish me because it won't cost them very much. I was thinking of those or the Encyclopedia Britannica. I thought those were much cheaper, much easier to make. So I applied to Fabry, who published those in those days. But Fabry were on the point of closure. I had little stories that somebody at Fabry had seen them and I, I, they put me on to another publisher. Uh, so I was handed from publisher to publisher until I found somebody to publish me. But I knew nothing about publishing, and to me, I thought it was quite normal. A lot of children's authors say they started off by telling stories to their kids. Was that the case in your case? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> it wasn't. I, I thought, I was in advertising, and I, I got, as I say, I, I, I got into a sort of doldrum and wanted to do a children's book. I thought it would a book. I wouldn't care less whether it was a children's book. I liked the idea of something printed that I had written or drawn that was on my bookshelf that I could show to people. So I did it really to show off. I had some children then, but um, I told them stories in any case. But no, it wasn't the driving force. Ego was the driving force. <laughs> That's very honest of you to admit yeah. it. <laughs> so how, have you kept count of how many books you've produced since then? No. A few years ago, I tried a count. It was 2,000. No. And so now it's around 3,000. I keep quoting 3,000. My goodness. But that's not written. That's, some of them are written and some of them illustrated. Out of those, I think I've written about 300 and illustrated in all about 3,000. 
Josh, so you're in great demand as a, an illustrator. When do you get involved in the production of a book? Um, well, one of my own books, my own that I write, right from the beginning, of course. In terms of illustration, though? In terms of illustration, illustrating other people, right at the other end of the line, because um, imagine an author who is a little bit, um, a little bit of a prima donna, we write a book and it's his little baby and he wants the, so the meetings about it, arguing with him and time ticks by. So finally something is beaten out, he is subdued and changes his book to what the publishers want and then there's some more meetings and the, then they decide they can go ahead and publish it. Then there's some more meetings and time is running out. And when there's about a week left, they approach me and say, um, we're, we're thinking we're going to press on Thursday and we want 305 illustrations. <laughs> How are you fixed? Are you serious? Yes, absolutely serious. I could name names, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just as well. Yes. And do you always see eye to eye with the author when it comes to illustrations? I mean, they must have a very clear picture in their mind of how they want it to be illustrated. Yeah. So do you illustrate to order or do you always do your own thing? I always do my own thing because I believe that's what they're employing me for. They're not employing me and just do illustrations. They're employing me because they like what I do. So I do what I do and uh, I'm not very tolerant with criticism. I'm not good at, cri at being criticised. I do have tantrums. But I like to get my own way in the end because I feel I've been at it long enough and I know my own business. I know my craft. And uh, sales, um, sales departments of big publishing houses only think of sales. I like to think of posterity. I like to think that my drawings one day will be hailed by art schools saying this is how you should do it. I I'm not interested in sales. But of course, I'm in big organisations that are interested in sales. So I understand their point of view. Tony, I think you'll have a whole gallery dedicated to you. Alongside the National Gallery and the Tate, there'll be the Tony Ross Gallery. I quite like that. Do you like that? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> in fact, I've got an exhibition at home that I keep in a blue cardboard box, which um, I thought I'd lost. It went out to an exhibition in Paris, and then it went down to the, the Riviera. It was an exhibition in Nice. And it's a smashing exhibition of all my early drawings. And I found it the other day, and I thought, I'll keep this box together for anybody who wants an exhibition of early stuff. My early stuff is so much better than what I'm doing now. Really? Mm -hmm. I'd have thought you'd have evolved and got better and better over time. I would have hoped that. <laughs> so what happened? I don't know. I, I, think, I think I became a bit more popular, had to work quicker, and had to work certainly quicker, and had to work for more important uh, writers. I mean, like, like David Williams. David Williams is a nice guy to work for because he doesn't interfere, but his publishers like to present him in a certain way, so they are rather insistent on what they want. In the earlier days, I wasn't working for famous people like... Well, I was. Roald Dahl, for instance. But Roald Dahl was a delightful man and didn't object to anything. It was lovely. He never, he never... Oh, he once told me on Fantastic Mr. Fox, could I take out a couple of the teeth on the fox? Because he said, my fox, I want to um, be friendly and nice. I said, Mr. Dahl. I didn't, I never dreamed of calling him Roald. <laughs> Mr. Dahl, but a fox, your fox has slaughtered a shed full of chickens. Yes, he said, but uh, in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, with him, 
I liked him so much as a man, I couldn't help saying, yes, all right, I'll you do it. You acceded to his request. Mm, yeah. And when it comes to, to writing, Tony, um, a, lo- a lot of children's books are seem deceptively simple in that your target audience is, I don't know, three, four, five years old. But in fact, I would imagine in many respects it's much harder doing that because you've got to put yourself in the, the, the mindset of a of a, a young child. Uh, would that well, be correct? That is only one point of view. It's not mine. There is a point of view that uh, you look inside a child and try and do what is in their heads. To me, that's like copying. It's like the child dictating what you should do to it, which is sort of regurgitation. I'd rather introduce children into my mind. So if I get an idea, which I think is crazy or interesting or scary or whatever makes a good story, I like to do it and give it to the children and let them scale into that rather than the other way around. So how do the ideas pop into your mind? Just everyday life? No, I find... I find they're very rare, and when when they come, they're quite valuable, especially if you feel they're any good, because you get a lot of ideas which are no good, and you know they're no good, and they're never going to go anywhere, and if they did go anywhere, they'd make a not very good book. There are ideas like that, and many, many, many of them, but you've got to see your way through those, and see, look for the idea which you feel is going to be an absolute stunner. And the, the stunning books do exist. They do exist. I'm always stumbling across them. Um, there's a book, my favourite children's book, is a book by Quentin Blake and Michael Rosen called The Sad Book. And when I read it, I was really quite moved. And then I looked at it again, and I thought, well, not only is it moves the heart, it's well drawn. It's a beautiful book. And then I looked at it again, and gosh, Michael Rosen is such a good writer that technically it's good. So it hit the heart, it was technically, it was well drawn. Those things do exist. There was a book called The White Rose. Um, it was published by Cape, I think, in England, about um, a German occupation of a, of a small European country. And I, I forget the author, and I shouldn't forget the author, because he's brilliant, Robert Innocenti the Italian author called Robert, Roberto Innocenti wrote The White Rose. And it's a stunning book. It's a book for grown-ups, but it's a book for children as well. And it's a book for... It's, if you if grown-ups read it, they think, oh, it was bad back then. And then if children read it, they think, gosh, the future mustn't ever be like this. It's a powerful book, but like most things that are powerful, it's very um, compelling. Have you ever considered writing for adults? I haven't. No. I've, I've written a book of horror stories called A Word in Your Ear, which are not written for any age group at all. They're written just because I wanted to write them, because these were stories. Horror, if you're in children's books, horror stories are forbidden. There's no, no place in picture books. So I had this clutter in my head of stories that could never be published. And I thought the way to publish them is to just go for a horror book and do it. My publisher was reluctant to to publish them. Then my birthday came up, so he published them as a birthday present for me. Oh, that's nice. Now, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, uh, Tony, but uh, during the period that this interview will be broadcast, which is in the latter half of 2018, I happen to know you'll be turning 80. Yeah. 
in August. Hopefully. In fact. Hopefully. If I get that far. Yeah, yeah. I years. see no reason why you shouldn't. Any thoughts of slowing down, taking it easy? Oh, I suppose death will put the brake on things. <laughs> but death will be the time for reissues, so my widow will make a lot of money. <laughs> but no, no, my publisher's older than me, my best friends are older than me, I'm David McKee, Michael Foreman... We're a group, Ralph Steadman, they're all older than me, my publisher's older than me, and that's like being with a bunch of school children. So it doesn't worry me the slightest, because no matter what happens, I'll always be younger than them. <laughs> so children the world over can look forward to a continuing issue, stream of books yes, from Tony Yes, they can be getting, yes, when they're in their, their, their late 40s and 50s, they'll, they'll still be there doing them and burning them out. You must have a lot of parents now who read your books when they were toddlers and are now doing the same to their children or even their grandchildren. The grandchildren are a little bit more scary, yes, especially if the parents look particularly young. Uh, yeah, that happens. I, I, I have met two or three in this fair like that, that they knew my books when they were tiny. Yeah. Just to round off, we're here in Dubai right now you've been to the festival a few times what's your take on dubai i find it very uh, not exciting not different because it remarked me i i thought how similar to florida it was when i got off the plane and I drove into Dubai and passed all the big concrete flyovers and see this in the palm trees. Florida's like that. And then on the plane, I'd seen all the theme parks that are open here, and Florida's like that. So I thought, oh, next time I come to Dubai, maybe it'd be like huge Disneyland. And Disneyland is my favorite place in the entire world. I love it there. So the more um, Dubai gets like Disneyland, the happier I'll be to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we look forward to welcoming you back in your 81st year in the LitFest 2019 and uh, many more years and many more books to come, I hope. Well, invite Klaus Pfluger and Michael Foreman and uh, David McKee as well and then I'll appear very young. Excellent. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Okay.